Welcome, everybody. I hope you're staying healthy and staying happy. I have two very special guests for you today. Later, we'll meet Gordy Johnson, lead guitarist and singer for the platinum-selling Big Sugar. He joins us from his Sound Shack Studios just outside of Austin, Texas, to discuss Big Sugar's new album, Eternity Now. But first, I speak with Daniel Calla, an emergency room doctor, the head of the ER department at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, and the author of best-selling books, including his most recent novel, The Last High. We talk about his pandemic prediction, why we've been lucky as a planet, and if he ever feels like a character in one of his own books. He was meant to be on sabbatical for two months from his hospital in Vancouver to work on his next book, and then everything changed in March. I had the world's worst sabbatical because, you know, I really was putting some time aside and I, I didn't have any clinical shifts, but being department head, I tagged somebody to cover for me for a month and I thought it'd be just some nuisance calls or whatever, but it just exploded in March and we had no choice. And of course, and yet in an odd way, it was some of the most fulfilling as an administrator, hospital administrator on the front line, it was the most fulfilling role I've ever had. We didn't know what was coming. Our hospital was so amazing, like so many others, the, the staff just rose to the challenge and we, you know, we collaboratively transformed our emergency room into a COVID ready unit. And so it was, uh, you know, I was really proud of what we did, but it wasn't much of a sabbatical. Kella is a history buff and has written extensively about pandemics. So I asked him, what are we learning through all of this? I, I do consider myself a bit of a buff, especially, uh, a bit of a pandemic fanatic, if that's, <laughs> that can be described, because I've written about the Black Death, Spanish flu, all of them really, and speculated on fictional ones. And one thing that's very interesting to me is historically, like people don't really realize the Black Death, which is the worst cataclysm to ever hit mankind, also produced the Renaissance. There was good that came out of the Black Death. The, the, the lower classes were empowered, sadly, because so many of them died. The stranglehold of the superstition on the church was released. And there was enlightenment after the Black Death. And even after the Spanish flu, the Roaring Twenties came, and there was good things that come from And I'm kind of hoping, after all the exhausting, tragic stuff we've seen the last two months, that, that there are indicators that some good will come out of this. I, I think pandemics bring out the best and worst in people, just like any you know, crises does. And I, I'm hoping we'll learn from this and, and, you know, get our priorities maybe a bit reset. And so I have hope. I told Daniel Kalla that the word reset feels appropriate to me these days. I told him I'm rethinking so many of the things that I took for granted before the pandemic. I suggested we might come out of this difficult time different than we went in. I think that's so right, Richard. I think this is the only existential threat our generation, any generation who's alive is right. Nobody has really lived through the Spanish flu or even the Great Depression. If they did, they're very old. But this is the, being the first threat. And I think you're right. I can't believe because it's not just healthcare workers. I see my friends who work in real estate and other in law and other industries and they're getting hit economically so hard. And so few of them are really complaining. They're focusing on the priorities of their family. You know, they're worrying about their future, but there's a kind of stoicism and a kind of, you know, collaborativeness that's coming out of this that, you know, because we've lived in a time, as you know, of so much tribalism over the past few years and, and so much materialism. And I'm kind of hoping people will go the other way and realize what is important. I asked him when he goes into work at the emergency room, 
Does he expect loss and devastation? And how does he steel himself for that? Well, the worst part for us in Vancouver was the first month when we didn't know if we were going to be the next New York or Italy. We've been so lucky, even compared to Ontario, and especially compared to Ontario and Quebec. Our, you know, we've had great management. Our government's done a very good job in BC, but we just had sheer luck, and we have so far avoided the worst of it by far. Our, cl- our curve has been very flat. We're seeing very little COVID patients right now. So, you know, if anything, we have COVID fatigue, but we didn't have the worst that uh, that so many people did. Fifteen years ago, the protagonist in his novel Pandemic predicted that the world was well overdue for a killer flu. Now, we know this isn't a flu, but it is a pandemic. Calla says that he doesn't have psychic powers, but I asked him, how was he able to predict this? It's comparable to saying, to me, predicting another major earthquake and not telling you when and where it's going to happen. Or there'll be another tidal wave. Of course there's going to be one. And what embarrasses me is for all my research and all my knowledge about pandemics, I was as shocked as the next guy when this one actually showed up, right? But, but historically, we should have been prepared that we were way overdue for a bad pandemic. We haven't had one since the Spanish flu over 100 years before. So it doesn't take Nostradamus to know another one's coming. And, and, and frankly, I have to say, society, healthcare, governments, our pandemic planning all could have been better. You know, we were, we were all caught a little unawares on this one, I think. Daniel Kalla, author of The Last Hive, says, we've actually been fairly lucky as a planet. I asked him, how so? The worst thing we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen obviously HIV and some terrible infections, but in the scale like you were talking about, because we don't, coronaviruses, apart from SARS, are so unique to cause this kind of threat. But the bad flus, I mean, even the, the bad pandemics of the 50s and the 60s, the Hong Kong flu, you remember when H1N1 came along and everyone thought we were going to be devastated. And it turned out to be not much worse than your average annual flu, right? And so we have, we just, we've dodged a few bullets and we should have seen this one coming to a degree. Considering the topics of his books, with everything going on in the world, I asked him if he ever felt like he was a character in one of his own novels. <laughs> no, I, you know, I tell people, I wish I was in one of my books. They have, hap- they have happier endings. They never get this bad in my books, you know. Over 300,000 dead as of today, Richard, right? Like, so, and it's, you know... Um, so, yeah, it is surreal, though, to have written and tried to imagine the kind of sense of uncertainty and, and you know, that horrible sense of, you know, I could be next and everybody's vulnerable. I always tried to put that in writing and my characters and convey that. And now to feel that at work and with my family, it's, it's surreal. Daniel Kalla's new book, The Last High, is about the opioid crisis. But I asked him in one final pandemic question if he thought that substance abuse could be a new crisis of the pandemic. 100%. That's a, that's a great question. First of all, you know, as, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the opioid crisis is a terrible epidemic on its own. And we were just in Canada starting to make some gains against the horrible loss and deaths we've seen. And we already see with COVID that there's new spikes in overdoses going on all across the country for a number of reasons. But I think you're deadly right. I think more people out of despair, out of, you know, economic tribulations, troubled times always pushes people towards substance abuse. And I think we're going to have a rash of mental health and substance abuse issues in the wake of COVID, to be honest with you. Daniel Kellis says that he wrote The Last High as a way to encapsulate his experiences of working around opioids as a doctor and to warn people of the risks. I asked him two questions. 
What does he see day to day in terms of fentanyl abuse? And how do you warn people off something that they probably already know is bad for them? Well, the, the, okay, let me tackle the first ones. Because in day to day, you know, where I work, there's not a shift where I won't see at least one or two fentanyl overdoses come in. Um, on a Friday or Saturday night, it might be five or 10. And those are the lucky ones. Those are the ones that someone got to for the, mo the most part and gave the antidote naloxone and were resuscitated. So they weren't alone when they're found. Um, although some of them do come in and their heart restarts, but their brains don't survive, and, which is tragic, obviously. I also work for the ambulance service as a consultant, and I'll get multiple calls in a day about this person found by their partner, by their parents, by their kids, you know, overdosed and it's too late and it's it's so tragic and i see in st paul's our regular clientele our you know our substance dependent patients in the downtown east side they just you know we used to see them time and time again we got to know some of them and they've just so many of them disappeared over the last five years with twelve thousand deaths in canada in the last three years most of them young people i think are relatively aware but i don't think they're quite aware because comparing the risk of smoking or drinking is like comparing the risk of playing with a BB gun versus playing with an AK-47. This is something that can kill you the first time you use it, the second time you use it, the 15th time you use it. And, and just lecturing, especially, I really try to reach some kids. You know, I'm hoping parents and kid teenagers and 20-something-year-old will read this book. I mean, hey, because I hope it's an entertaining story and a pretty good HUD who done it. But it is meant to be a cautionary tale. And I'm sure you, you as a pop culture, culture expert, Richard, will remember the Scared Straight series of about 20 years ago. You remember, they, you remember they took those young juvenile offenders and they took them to Rikers and they brought out the most hardcore lifers and they would yell at them, the, the, these convicts would yell at them and tell them all the terrible things that were going to happen to them in jail once they got there. And the idea was to scare them straight. This is exactly, I'm trying to be the novelistic equivalent of scared straight. I'm not telling them anything. I want to show them what happens, what really happens. You know, the young people who didn't even realize they were taking opioids, the casual cocaine user whose cocaine is contaminated with fentanyl. They're all at risk, and I want them to see that there are huge consequences. I said to my guest, Daniel Kalla, author of The Last High, that there are many kinds of opioids, but we hear mostly about fentanyl. It's deadly, and I know that this sounds crass, but there's no quality control when it comes to the illegal processing of the drug. Does that make it twice as deadly as everything else? That is, that is so true, Richard, and I go so much into the mechanics of that in the book, just how bad. I use that term all the time, the lack of quality control. It's cooked in these terrible kitchens. They mix them with God knows what, you know, powders and pills they can find. There's no consistency to the, to the uh, potency of what they're giving. They add these ultra-potent fentanyls like carfentanil, which can kill blue whales, you know, and, and so every time you use, you're not getting the same dose. And, and you hit such an important point. I mean, we saw heroin users for years, and at least with heroin, they roughly knew the dose. They still overdosed and died. But with this, it's, the death rate's gone up 700, 800%, because it's, like I say, it's like going from the BB gun analogy to the AK-47. You just can't play with this drug. We kick off the second part of our interview with Daniel Kalla, with me asking him what kind of research he did into the criminal side of this story. And I asked, did it open your eyes? So much. I, yeah, that is so good. I have this, I have this old hockey friend who is the, the toughest and best hockey player I worked with. And he turns out, and I'm, I'm not, I mentioned him in the forward, but I'm not allowed to identify what, him, what he does exactly. All I can say is he works in uh, drug enforcement in greater Vancouver with the police. 
he gave me a crash course on this world and it was staggering. I had no idea the depth of the underworld. You know, first of all, the stupidity, the short-sightedness, the greed, but the organized and disorganized crime that goes on. And, you know, as you alluded to earlier, people always ask, why would dealers switch from a product like heroin where not many of their patients or clients die to fentanyl where a huge portion of their clients die? Well, a kilo of heroin and a kilo of fentanyl cost the same to produce, about 7,000, but you get about 100 times as many hits out of fentanyl. It's worth like $1.6 million on the street versus $70,000. The economics for them, the greed and profit is so high. So he just gave me this, you know, and, and the, just the gang culture is fascinating in Vancouver. I had no idea. And, you know, Vancouver, I'm so proud. It's my beautiful city and I love it so much, but it has a dark, underbelly you know one character in it jokingly says it's a six dressed up as a nine but you know because it has that that dark side and uh and so i i, I it was to have my eyes open to the to the criminal distribution and processing of fentanyl was just for me it was fascinating i told daniel calla that that kind of detail makes books like the last high feel textured i asked him if it's important to him that people not only be entertained by his books but they learn something as well yeah i sure hope so richard i've never felt stronger in a novel i've written that a message will be taken away from this like you know i honest to god believe that the story could happen exactly as i wrote it tomorrow. I mean, it starts with five kids dying at a party, not even realizing they are taking opioids at all because their drink was spiked and, you know, and, and goes from there about this terrible product that's hit the street. And, it, you know, there are sporadic stories like that all the time. And I think we're at risk every day of that happening. And, you know, and that's why I want parents and kids to be aware of that. In 2016, Daniel Calla's home province of British Columbia officially declared the crisis, the opioid crisis, a public health emergency, while the Canadian government estimates that there have been more than 9,000 apparent opioid-related deaths since 2016, with 94% happening by accident. These numbers are sobering. I know. And, and when you, what's even more sobering is when you look at the average age of death, Richard, they're like early 30s. So, you know, you, you, you take the people who do it accidentally, you know, who don't even realize they're trying it or first time users, you take the most hardened addicts and none of them choose to be there. I wish we could stop stigmatizing it and realize it's a genetically inheritable disease. And, and many of them, you know, with the right effort and the right treatment programs and, and, and the right support in the community might have kicked this habit. But they didn't get the chance because they died and their parents buried them. You know, people don't, I don't think, realize the level of this tragedy and how far and wide it reaches and all the people it touches. I asked Daniel Calla if some of the strategies we've learned during our battle with COVID-19 might be able to help in tackling the opioid crisis, which will continue and perhaps even ramp up again once the pandemic is over. You're right, because I think opioids will be with us long after COVID. So... Um, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We were starting in BC in particular, because we're kind of the epicenter, Canadian epicenter for the opioid crisis. We had put a lot of efforts into harm reduction strategies and we were making some gains. But it's the kind of consolidated, focused response that we put to COVID in the pandemic. If we could apply that to opioids, I know it's expensive and I know there's a limited resources, but it's a worthwhile investment. And then maybe we could apply it to homelessness and mental health issues and other issues, you know, and, and really make some permanent gains rather than just some temporary, you know, wins. And so 
I really think we could learn a lot from how we're managing COVID. I asked Daniel Kalla, a doctor and a novelist, an obvious question. Does he think that when all this is said and done, his next book will be pandemic-related, or does he think people will have had enough by then? You know, you know, Richard, I don't care what people think. I don't want to hear. I don't, if I can go the rest of my life without hearing COVID or pandemic again, I'd be a happy man. Yeah. So I am not, my next book, I promise you, will not be about that. <laughs> I asked Dr. Kala if the daily 7 p.m. cheer for healthcare workers boosts his spirits. Yeah, so much. As I said, I've never, you know, I've been, I kind of, as medicine, I'm a third generation doctor and I sort of fell into the profession. I've always been, you know, relatively proud and satisfied with my job. But it's not been till this that I've sort of viewed, especially, you know, so many of the people I work with, the nurses, the cleaners, the clerks, the, as, as kind of heroic in what they do, you know, like comparing it to the military and despite the risk going in and facing it. And, and, and so I have a huge brand new level of respect and admiration for my colleagues. And then the way the public's responded, you know, with that cheer that we can hear it so loud when you're downtown at my hospital, St. Paul's, it makes you feel so good. Like, you know, like the public has your back and it's, it, it, it makes the job easier and it makes me even prouder of what I do. Finally, I asked Dr. Kala if he has any hand-washing tips for us. Yes. As one nurse, OR nurse screamed at me in medical school, get the thumbs, get the thumb. It's all People, about the thumbs. It's all about the thumbs. People don't wash their thumbs enough. <laughs> Johnson zooms in from his Sound Shack studios just outside of Austin, Texas, to discuss Big Sugar's new album, Eternity Now, their first in five years, his love of double neck guitars, and how being in isolation is kind of like being a musician on the road. Gordy's been working from his home studio for a long time, so I began by asking if he has noticed a big difference in his day-to-day -day life since being in isolation. Uh, I have a lot less distraction, it seems, because I, I, don't, I don't have to be, I'm not compelled to go out and do things and run errands, like I'm not running to Target or Walmart, and I'm not, I don't go into Austin for anything. I was already not really going into Austin for anything, uh, except to play music which I was really just doing recreationally, you know, two nights a week. And I really just kind of started that up again. So I, I do miss that a little bit because it was sort of like, it was sort of like bowling night, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I've been practicing the drums at home. I'm going to go play the drums tonight at big old, you know, funk jam in Austin. So I was really, I was really digging that good musical recreation and just mm -hmm. a chance to, you know, sort of uh, rejuvenate one's uh, creative intuition, you know, things like that. Yeah. But uh, so I missed that. But I was already really good at being a bit of a shut in. <laughs> what do you think live music is going to be like once this is all over? I think in a couple of years, we'll probably be back to the kind of situations that we're familiar with, but in the next year or so, what do you see? Will you do shows at drive-ins where everyone will sit in their car, or what do you think will happen once the restrictions are lifted a little bit? 
I don't know, man. It's it's kind of early to predict. I mean, some people are thinking, hey, stuff is just slowly starting to open up again. I'm, I mean, I don't want to be a predict doom or anything, but it's just as likely as not that, man, until they come up with a vaccine or a cure or something, mm-hmm. it's as likely that there'll be a giant lockdown again. I and mean, I'm not, I don't have my heart set on anything in particular at the moment. I just, I spend most of my time thinking about my loved ones and relatives and band members and friends and just hoping everybody comes away unscathed uh, with, with their health intact, but also financially. I mean, I have some friends who've already been hit really hard. Uh, businesses closing. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like when all said and done, how many promoters will be willing to take the risk to put on a show. Um, I don't want to ask my band to travel anywhere until things are really actually all clear. You know, I just don't want to be responsible for anybody getting sick. Right. And I don't want to see anybody get sick. You're listening to my interview with Big Sugar guitarist Gordy Johnson. You were saying that you were thinking about friends and family, your band members, and that seems to be uh, the case. When I listen to Eternity Now, the album, it seems like a reflective album. It seems like an album uh, that uh, came with a fair amount of introspection. Introspection. Um, can you tell me, I know you wrote the song, some of the songs with your wife, Alex, but can you tell me about putting this together and what the album uh, means to you? Well, the whole process was pretty cathartic. And just completely by coincidence, it, it happens to be a really good album pertaining to our current situation and our times, you know, just um, people having to really it, it, this has been a great test of uh, mental endurance for a lot of people i feel like you know the the whole quarantine and everything and just the uncertainty really can put everyone mentally on edge and the record is about overcoming all of those things um and getting one's emotions in shape and getting one's mind limber and in shape like if your brain's a muscle you know um to overcome a lot of adversity that we've lived through in the past. Um, but like I said, it's just coincidental that all of the lyrics are, <laughs> are, they seem kind of pertinent at the moment. Uh, of course, if we'd had no way of, of knowing that ahead of time, we were just writing from our own experience. And not that it's lucky, but, you know, being, <laughs> I think for musicians, we've lived with so much uncertainty for so long. <laughs> in our careers and it was not just myself i mean everyone i know in music that right now it's kind of like hey now everybody's in a band now you know what we mean will there be a gig if there is a gig will you get paid for that gig who knows if there'll ever be another gig uh you know and then you're stuck in a small space with people that you know and love but they start to get on your nerves after a while and there's only so many you know netflix series you can watch you're on tour basically with a band you're drinking before noon it's you're in a band welcome to welcome to touring wow now you know the life of a musician there's a line on this record that i wrote down that i loved when i was listening to it it's from the song the better it gets and it's the it's the the title line the better it gets the easier it gets to get better it's such a fantastic line and it really uh rung true to me uh because there have been uh 
several times in my life, and I think like everyone's life, where you got to get better, and it and it it only gets better when you decide that it's going to get better, when you start to feel better, and it, when you're in that hole looking up, that that pit can seem pretty deep, but. Uh, it, it, this line really, really grabbed me. Um, is there, a, is there a, a story behind that? Is there a, a, a philosophy behind that? I'm really glad that line did grab you because it is sort of the mission statement for the whole record. Mm -hmm. You know, the entire album is centered around that premise. Uh, and the songs and the lyrics, you know, we, at some point, all of the lyrics were laid out on the floor and put in a specific order, as if we were writing a screenplay or editing a movie. You know, you want the story to unfold in a certain order and manner. Um, yeah, and it really did come down to, you know, in our lives, does your past define you? Do you keep going down the same pathways that lead you to, to unhappiness? Uh, people get you kind of get addicted to unhappiness. It becomes your familiar. You'd rather be in a familiar place that's unhappy than take the risk of trying to go somewhere new and unfamiliar and with the chance of being happy. A lot of people will default to what they know, which in many cases is just misery. So I love the, I love the, uh, the expression. It's so common. We don't even notice it anymore to change your mind. Oh no, I changed my mind. I and mean, we just throw that off so so flippantly. Oh, I uh, oh, I was going to order the pizza but I changed my mind and I got the chicken wings. Changing one's mind is is a willful is a willful action and your brain is is equipped to do that. Your brain can change itself. And there's a wonderful book by Norman Doidge called uh The Brain That Changes Itself. And it's, I read the book and it, it really it was kind of, it was path changing for me. I really went down a different path with the notion that, no, this was scientifically proven. You, you can change your brain. You're not stuck in depression. You're not stuck in addiction. You're not stuck yeah, with that mentality. You can willfully change your mind. So putting that into practice every day, yeah, easier said than done, but it is possible. And I think we're living proof that with diligent, you know, it's almost like exercising every day. It's like working out. Willfully choose a different mental path. Your, your, your conditioned responses to, to memories or stimulus or whatever, you, you know, you can choose to practice feeling different about those things. And it eventually catches on. We're midway through my interview with Gordy Johnson, lead guitarist and singer for the platinum selling Big Sugar. Their new album, Eternity Now, is about shutting the door on some painful memories and making room for a more optimistic future. I asked Gordy if it's also a tribute to the healing power of music. This is what he had to say. That, that wasn't willfully what it was about like that wasn't premeditated that is accurate however and that that that's what happened mm -hmm. when we left ourselves open to that that's the path that it took so that's more of a after the fact uh, assessment of it like i said it wasn't premeditated but no that it did result in that in just a, an openness and it was easier to let people in you know music has always been a very solitary and sort of a a dark brooding place and i look at all of my previous records it's all 
oh man, it's it's all dissatisfaction and heartache. You know what I mean? It's all <laughs> it's all the blues. It's, you know what I mean? Like I just I don't wow I don't feel like I don't feel like singing about that stuff right, right now. You know, it, it seems it, like there's more important subject matter to cover. Do you find it interesting when you do go back? Not all of us have this incredible kind of catalog of our lives. So, you know, when you think about the 500 pounds album from uh, 1993, you've got that moment caught on tape or on a CD or a record or something for you to go yeah. back and go, Oh yeah, it's not just the guy on the, on the cover with the big guitar holding the big Dobro guitar holding that up. Um, but when you hear the music, do, does it, trigger something within you does it does it take you back to 1993 or is it just that's what i did those are my songs i think to be able to function as a sane human being you do have to let these things go Recently, <laughs> i have uh yeah i just maybe resolved to the notion that these are songs about things that happened in the past and I don't have to relive all of the angst in order to tell you the story. And there's also a beauty in, especially with this new record, because there was so much pain and suffering that went into the, the stories of it. You know, once you've made the record and the songs are out there, the songs can take over. The songs can tell the story for you. Let the songs bear the burden of remembering and recanting all these emotions. I don't have to carry it around in a backpack with me to, you know what I mean? It's, it's an, it's an interesting way to look at it. Just let the songs do the work for you. Did you ever consider delaying the release of the album again? I mean, this took uh, quite a while to come out and then the pandemic hits and did you ever think, okay, let's just wait and see what happens or did the, the message of the album seem appropriate for right now well the only thing that we ended up delaying it by a couple of weeks i mean the, the record's already been delayed by years yeah. you know i mean we had a record two years ago that was done and ready to go and then it didn't and then we started again and then gary passed away our, our bass player yeah. and that shut the whole works down again for a minute and so you know we'd been to hell and back to make the record and then it felt like, okay, well, now there's a global pandemic. Um, what do you want to do? <laughs> you really want to wait? Because we don't have to. Touring isn't the only way to get the message out there. You know, I mean, we, we're a live band, but um, I'm happy that people have something to take their mind off it. Just let's put it out there and make some videos and do some live stuff on, online and put that record out and just let it start having its life out there in the world. It's Say, I'm not saving it up for a rainy day anymore. You know, let's just let's just put it out there. We really only delayed it by another month or something because, um, you know, the folks at at our record label weren't going into work. Everyone was trying to figure out, okay, how are we even going to do this? Yeah. Our manufacturing plant's going to be open because good vinyl records. Are, are we going to be able to get a box of those or, or what? So there, there was a bunch of questions that had to be answered first. And that's really the only thing that delayed us because other than that, I think people are still consuming music and entertainment at an unprecedented rate because what else you got, you know, at this point. So. Well, you've also got videos and I love that you shot them on an iPhone 11 
And I've got the, the video here for Wonder Woman. And, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, that would have cost $100,000 to make. <laughs> and now yeah. it probably cost 25 bucks to make. Well, I mean, the iPhone was a little more than $25. <laughs> but I'm assuming you already have an iPhone. So it's a built-in. That's why I got it. Oh, no, but that, I mean, we got all this stuff with, with the intention of being uh, self-sufficient and being able to execute this stuff. Like today, um, we opened our new, our new merch store today because now we're not selling T-shirts at a table at a concert. Right. Now we got to sell it online. So I'm going to shoot a commercial for our, for our merch store. It's funny how your experiences in life might have seemed like a waste of time at one point, but now I look back at, um, you know, I used to get gigs in my, in my scuffling days in the late eighties and early nineties in Toronto, uh, being silent on camera or a special skills extra yeah. holding a guitar in a scene and Liza Minnelli standing next to me, you know what I mean? Or, or whoever, Farrah Fawcett, you know, this, and that just seemed like unbelievably boring work. That was all I could do to just pay my rent. And now I look at all the things I observed in those days, lighting, camera angles, how to, uh, how to manage your time on set and get these things done. We shot so many videos where we were kind of the victims of the video. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, we flew to Mexico, but we're kind of victims here. They're like, they're, they're making us stand in the freezing cold. Now we're standing in the boiling hot sun with a double neck and, now I'm getting chased by a guy on a horse. Like there's all this stuff in these videos. You're like, what the hell, man? We're the victims. We're not the stars of it. So that gives, you know, I yeah. take in all of those things, all of those video edits I sat through in the nineties. I can now sit at my computer and make a lot of decisions with this wealth of experience that I had. I didn't even know I was getting an education, but now I can actually put it into, into practice. You're listening to my interview with Big Sugar guitarist and singer Gordy Johnson. We are. I was just looking at the guitarist behind you and wondering if I would see that double neck that Alex Lifeson gave you that you play in the Digging a Hole video and that he played on Farewell to Kings. Yeah, oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> right. there. there it is. I see. It. That's amazing. Wow. There's the where's the brown ones back here in a pile of guitars. I was. Uh, I make this little series for YouTube of uh, you know ten minute episodes talking about guitars or uh, and their vintage guitars and their little history and some beauty shots, my little stories of what what I've done with them. Uh, sometimes I explain how to play songs. So my studio is also a constant video production like guitar workshop. I've got twenty guitars in here. We did a live stream last week, a little fundraiser thing, uh, and. So uh, you know, I've got 20 guitars on stands all over the patio out here. It's just a constant. I miss my guitar tech, man. Yeah. Well, do you work on your own guitars? Do you do you fix I, I do now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my guitar techs are in Calgary and <laughs> someplace in Ontario, and I got a guy in Winnipeg. And yeah, no, I've I've got the WD40 in a little toolbox, man. I've been cleaning <laughs> guitars like crazy. <laughs> Um, you wrote the songs on the album with your wife, Alex, who's also your manager, a longtime uh, uh, business and personal partner. How do you work together? Do you sit in a room and jam it out or does, how, how does it work? Well, the, you know, the musical part of it, 
one thing, she doesn't have to have a filter. That's the beauty of it being your spouse is, you know, she'll tell me if the sauce is too salty. You know what I mean? <laughs> you tell me if the cheese isn't gooey enough. Right. When it comes to my cooking, you know, is your egg overdone? Like, she'll let me know. <laughs> so it's kind of be the same with the music where as a composer or producer or a musician, whatever, you can get so focused on a thing and she can walk down the hill, coffee in hand and go, are you going to leave it like that? Oh, I liked it better this morning. You know, and that's that unfiltered commentary that because it's her, I take it to heart and it causes me to look back at it and, and, and have a critical analysis of things from a, from a consumer standpoint, and not by a consumer, I don't mean someone who buys it, but someone who takes it in mm -hmm. with no preconceived notion. So for her, she can very blank slate come down and go, this is going the right way. That could maybe go back the way it was, you know, things like that. And for this record, she really, you know, we were already on, you know, two and a half versions of the record when she just said, okay, are, do you even want to do this? Because if you want to do this, what I suggest we do is just go down that hill, get in the studio, sit down, and let's just sit down and write this out. What do you got? What songs do you got? What's this one about? What's that one about? I have an idea. What, did you ever think about this thing that happened? And write, you know, so she really was a great sounding board and a great source of, here, let's write one about this. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, great. That was my interview with Big Sugar's Gordy Johnson. Find their new album, Eternity Now, wherever you buy fine music. My thanks to Dr. Kala for the hand-washing tips and for all the work he does as a frontline worker at St. Paul's in Vancouver. Check out his novel, The Last High. It's available now. And it's getting rave reviews. No less an expert than Kathy Reichs, the author of the Bones series of novels, called The Last High, a thrilling frontline drama about the opioid crisis. Thanks also to Gordy Johnson for hanging out and talking all about his new album with Big Sugar, Eternity Now. Most of all though, my thanks to you for joining us. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. I'm Richard Krause. We'll talk again soon.